Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thanks for joining us here today. My name is Scott Powell and as always I'm joined on this crime noir thriller adventure with my partner in reading Joshua Taylor across the pond in Canada. Hello. Today we're going to be having a look at uh, James N. Cain's classic novel, The Postman Always Rings Twice. And when you think of James N. Cain, you may think of Double Indemnity first, particularly mm-hmm. if you're a film fan or of classic Hollywood. Postman Always Rings Twice is also a classic film, but uh, perhaps, Josh, would I be right in saying that Postman plays second fiddle to Double Indemnity in terms of popularity for Cain's writing? Well, I'll get into it a little bit when we dive into James N. Cain's background, but what I gathered in the research I did on mm-hmm. James N. Cain's life and his literary career, it very well seems that Double Indemnity was sort of a a superior version of The Postman mm-hmm. Always Rings Twice. The Postman Always Rings Twice was sort of the proto version of what Double Indemnity uh, would be would be become uh, in terms of writing style, in terms of caliber, and in just terms of popularity. Uh, mm-hmm. Double Indemnity, of course, is linked to the film Double Indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray, Edward G. Robinson, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Raymond Chandler. It's a, you know, it's a cinema classic, and James N. Cain is tied to that legacy. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be neat to get into it. Why didn't we go for Double Indemnity? Why did we go for Postman? Because I think we've talked quite a bit about Double Indemnity in the past. We did... It's been mentioned a few times. Uh, I, I know we've both read it. Um, I'm not quite sure why we went for this one. I'm kind of glad we did because I had a copy of Double Indemnity somewhere and I don't know where the heck it is. And uh, okay. I wouldn't have been able to find it. <laughs> so I would have to order another one. But so then, you know, we just we just did yeah. Postman Always Rings Twice Always Rings Twice because, A, it's a film that some people have heard of. What's interesting is that while Double Indemnity has a strong critical following and uh, in terms of, you know, cinem- cinem- cinematic nostalgia, uh there's always in my in my mindset, you know, the postman always rings twice, just because of visuals we know of, like of the Jack Nicholson film uh, mm-hmm, with Jessica mm-hmm. Lang. Uh, I forget who the director was for that one, but that was the one that that was out in the early '80s, I believe, late '70s, early '80s. Well, both both involve um, quite a bit of betrayal, quite a bit of bloodlust, quite a bit of uh, lust, lust, and. Uh, We've taken our steps into hard-boiled fiction, and we're going to take another step into it here today. As, as always, we're going to have some fast facts on the writer, and then a summary of the plot, and then we'll finish things off with our pipes discussion, which is really the centerpiece of all of our episodes, where Josh and I score the different features of the novel uh, out of five and get an index for ranking. So yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, We're going to slide right on over now to our first feature, where Josh is going to give us some information on this writer. And it's really a a home... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? A a staple, one of the early daddies. Is this true to say, Josh? I would say so. If we look at it from a historical perspective, early noir is very detective fiction-y. But what really makes noir into noir was this injection of of like kind of putting those archetypes of, you know, the private detective and the femme fatale and the, the urban city police corruption setting, the detective story, essentially, and taking that out and bringing all the violence that were in those pulpy stories uh, to the suburbs, to, Amer- to the heart of Americana. The detective, as the protagonist, begins to dwindle away 
and you're dealing with regular Joes and working class men who get caught up in really shitty situations, morally ambiguous situations. And noir progresses, you know, in its in, in its peak uh, by the late '40s in this fashion, where we have less detective characters and more about morally conflicted individuals. And James mm-hmm. N. Kane is the guy that brought this to yeah. crime fiction and was then emulated uh, in film noir. And mm-hmm. what is really interesting is because James N. Kane, there was a provocative nature to his writing and to the stories that he was telling. And that was something that Hollywood really had to kind of navigate around for it to be able to present that to audiences at the time uh, due to the restrictions of, of course, the, um, the motion picture production code. So the Hayes Code. The, the Hayes Code, yeah. The Hayes Office is, is, is yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a proper term for it. So that's essentially, you know, that's what that, that that's our setup here is that James N. Kane comes in. We have 1943. We talked about on in the previous uh, podcast where we discussed Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, where he brought that macabre to the suburbs as well in a very kind mm-hmm. of James N. Kane kind of way. But only James N. Kane, he takes off the veneer that Hitchcock gave it. Like, you know, like that family-friendly veneer with the darkness underneath. And McCain just goes right to the to the first-person mindset of individuals caught up in these situations. And it's not pretty, what we're given mm-hmm. on the page. <laughs> no, Whereas, no. Like, shadow of a doubt. Yeah, we're creeped out by Joseph Cotton's character, you know, by uh, Oakley. But at the mm-hmm. same time, there's this veneer of all-time good-hearted America right there in front of you being corrupted. But it still wins in the end. And James N. Kane is very opposite to that. So mm. let's get into James N. Kane on his character and his uh, writing style and his overall history as a writer. Fantastic. So, everyone, thanks for joining us here on Lighting the Pipes. We're glad that you're on board for our new season. Uh, we hope you enjoy the show. All right, so James and Kane's family immigrated from Ireland and settled in New Haven, Connecticut in the 1850s. Uh, it was confirmed by Kane that this, they weren't fleeing the great famine of Ireland, so I guess they were from a higher class that they were able to subsist you know, during that time period, mm-hmm. but they still immigrated anyways because there was a lot of opportunities occurring, of course. Sure. Uh, his paternal grandmother died of typhoid after an outbreak in 1876, of which his father also contracted but survived. Now, his father attended Yale in 1880 and graduated in 1884, and this allowed him to become a professor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. His mother was Rose Malahan, uh, James and Kane's mother, a descendant of the Irish pirate Williams in Goldsby, and he famously attacked New York City, uh, the Dutch colony, uh, back in the day. So Very cool. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty. Well, not 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 cool if you were attacked, but cool. I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting history. Yeah, yeah. They should have yeah. got the Hessian horsemen to fight him. That would that would have yeah. been badass. Um, yeah, well, back he only to, comes out at night. Back to reality, though. Um, so his mother, uh, Rose, uh, she was trained. Uh, he was she was trained as a colatura soprano, and had mm-hmm. societal expectations to entertain that as a profession. But after Kane's grandfather remarried, uh, Kane Sr., I should say, he spent time Mm -hmm. with his neighbors, the Malahans, and that's how he got to meet Rose, and they became sweethearts. They married in 1890, and Rose pushed aside her opera career. Now, this is very interesting because we're introducing here a facet of uh, James and Kane's life revolves around opera. 
So it's interesting that this came from his mother, which is actually, in a Freudian way, makes perfect sense. But okay, keep it in mind. Yeah, keep that in mind. So she pushed. It, so Rose pushed aside her opera career to be a mother, essentially. So James Jr. was born on July first, eighteen ninety-two. James Malahan Kane. He, he entered grade school at the age of six, and he was incredibly intelligent for his age. And his father, who was then the head of the Annapolis School Board, allowed him to skip two grades. Kane would regret this request because his classmates entered puberty before him, and this yeah. created some awkwardness and tension. When Kane turned 11, his father was offered the position of president of Washington College, and the family relocated to Chestertown, Maryland. It is here that he made the acquaintance of Ike Newton, a bricklayer, which exposed Kane to the quote-unquote language of an of an uneducated but articulate person. Okay, so this guy must have been a really good family friend if the writer, as a young boy, was able to glean and kind of absorb the vernacular and and the the kind of traditional speak of of a working class American, you I know, would glean, and, and I not would just the immigrant well. family. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's interesting. Keep in mind, though, too, that he does come from an Irish background. So even though, like, yeah, Irish, yeah. He, he might be, like, you know, well-to-do Irish background, but at the same time, he is still Irish. And in a way, he is still an outlier in American society at this time period, mm-hmm. um, you know, because you still have a lot of, you know, distrust of Irish people going into the 1900s even, you know, with, like, the Fenians prior to that and uh, all the development going on in Ireland politically at, at the time. So... You know, being Irish was you were still considered like an, an immigrant. You were probably course, considered yeah. by like you know the white Anglo-Saxon majority as, yeah, you're you're a papist, you're a Catholic, but at least you're white. You know, so there was because you were well, you you had good money behind you, then that was kind of looked past. But at the same time, you can see you know that there was still probably prejudice in that fashion. So I can see how he was able to kind of adopt like a bricklayer as an avuncular figure in his life at that time. Okay, so how does this precocious young adolescent, um, two grades behind his peers, physically, sexually, ahead. perhaps, ahead rather, yes, but not, not physically. No, no. And not sexually. So how does this young adolescent who's mentally, you know, ahead, how does he use or how does he engender this working-class American vernacular that he's learning from this bricklayer. I presume that if it's a point in his biography, this bricklayer for pal of his dad's becomes important in some way, in some capacity. So it's not just yeah. like some random point you're sharing. So I'm curious to see how this young guy is going to is going to change or transform under his auspices or his exposure. This is really interesting. <laughs> it's a bit of a mystery itself, a transformation. So this excited him, you know, this, uh, this colloquial language. And it probably fostered his edu- Now, a lot of biographers say this probably fostered his fascination with common speech, which is a big mm-hmm. staple of his writing. At the age of 12, Kane was reading everything he could get his hands on. Thackeray, Fenimore Cooper, Dumas, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Robert Louis Stevenson. Well, so, Stevenson, Stevenson's got, got some common speech, for sure. Uh, yes. so and does, so does Doyle, Doyle has a bit, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't think uh, Fenimore Cooper is, is laced in that. You Neither know? Thackeray, either, if you think about no. it. No. So, so this we is, have this is interesting. Two, okay. It's, it's almost yeah. like it's, it's a nexus of two worlds. You have, like, that lower class kind of detective style that he was, you know, that he probably 
mired in, or they would consider that as such. But then he's also reading, you know, Thackeray, Thackeray, Fenimore Cooper. So he's reading classical, you know, British and American literature at the same time. Mm-hmm. So he's he's a, he's very well aware of being in both worlds. I think in terms of of literary caliber. Now, Kane's prodigious nature got him skipped ahead again, uh, attending Washington College with students four years his senior. While the skip ahead in middle school a few years back had confused him, during his time at Washington College, Kane made fast friends. One, uh, one provocative pastime they had was visiting local brothels, of which he did not participate uh, in, <laughs> in, in, in sex uh, with the prostitutes. But it did uh, create opportunities to have numerous flings with older women in town. So older women, I guess because the brothels were probably also local watering holes and, and whatnot, uh, they would go to these bars and they would pick up young men. And uh, obviously James N. Kane was one of them. So one he, of wouldn't, them yeah. he wouldn't sully himself with the prostitute or his family name in that fashion. But he would gladly, you know, become the play, the play thing of like some, you know, uh, rich widow or, you know, or, <laughs> or, or adulterous society. Maybe, boy you toy. know what I mean? Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, not that that, not that, not that that's a good thing at all, but I'm just, I'm just saying is like, it's morally ambiguous to com- compare the one thing to prostitution. Um, probably more than morally ambiguous actually. Right. So in his classes, he did struggle despite this precocious nature. Uh, Greek was one of the things that he struggled with. And he just passed uh, the, the, the sciences and Latin. So while being, you know, having a formal education, the classic, the classically trained languages like Greek and Latin were kind of like they didn't interest him. And I guess they, maybe he found them just not re- relevant. I don't know exactly, uh, but even still, he did have an aptitude in math. So mm-hmm. while the science, so while the sciences didn't intrigue him. He was very good at it, but he just didn't have the. But he just didn't, I guess, have the effort to show the grades required to impress people. Okay. But he did yep. excel in math. That was the one of the sciences that he did excel in. But it bored him. Cool. Uh, from here, he obtained his atrium baccalaureus degree uh, before his 18th birthday, but had no career plans at the time. So, what was he going to do with his career? I, I think anyone in his situation, kind of. In the modern days, seems like he graduated with, you know, a Bachelor of Arts in a sense. And now mm-hmm. what do I do having those questions in, in, yeah, in his mind that yeah. we would have today? I have a BA now. So what do I do next? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, get an MA. Well, yeah. <laughs> get get an MA. Get a go PhD. Go into teaching. Yeah. Go into teaching. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or work in a, in a music store, you know, like that's... Yeah. Or become a copywriter or... Yeah, I know what you mean, but at the same time, though, like what what were his father's involvements once or after graduation? Seeing as he really encouraged the speedy academic side of his development, what like what now, well, Dad? You know what I mean? Well, so first of all, James had after he graduated from college, uh, he moved to Baltimore, working odd jobs. He was a ledger clerk and then as a road inspector for the state of Maryland, but he found himself very proficient in writing reports for these jobs so much so that it sparked an interest in taking on a career in writing and he eventually began following his father's footsteps when he took a job as a principal of a high school and this brought but this also created another interest because being the principal of this high school he got involved into theater and and singing 
And mm-hmm. if you recall, that's his the mother, principle. That's the principle of the high school. He was involved prin- in, or he a, was kind of advocating a, it. Okay, so I don't have the missing pieces in between to explain how a high school right. principal okay. would get into singing. Yeah. It just explains. Yeah. <laughs> just explains to us that when he went to, it became yeah. a principal of this yeah. high school. He decided to get into singing. If this guy could come out as a young man and become a principal of a school, now that doesn't even happen in these days, of course. And yeah. I would have, I would have thought in those days, the, the 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 principal is is more of the authority figure, less less kind of rubbing shoulders with the kids and getting involved in the glee clubs, and more kind of a, a studious or an avuncular figure off to the side. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if yeah, I mean, Kane's obviously got these interesting life moments. You know, he's got the influence of the bricklayer. He's got the 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 job as a high school principal. Um, but it's about if if it's about this time that he got into music and singing, then it, it would follow. From what I was able to glean, he was lauded as being a very good singer, and so much cool. so that he we returned to his mother's would be career of being a classically trained opera singer, and he decided mm-hmm. that he wanted to become an opera singer. So you can imagine young James N. Kane goes to his father, the head of the Annapolis school board, you know, saying, hi, dad, I want to become an opera singer after all of this (laughs) literary training and and whatnot. And even his mother did not support this at all. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, It seems like he was getting he was getting preened and kind of driven down a road to follow his dad into education or into management of education or into some sort of post that way, you know, through the academics, through the university, through the principal job, which I'm sure dad had a hand in, in him getting. Yes. <laughs> and he shows up, shows Skipping back home ahead. one day. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Says he wants to be a singer. Okay, cool. So he was chastised by his family for this ambition, but he tried. He took voice lessons and working for an insurance and worked for an insurance company in the meantime to make ends meet. When this didn't work out, he ended up selling Victrolas just to support his oh, yeah. cool. singing career. Uh, and then he threw in the towel on that. Mm-hmm. He decided to become a writer, which his parents approved. So had his little stage okay. of rebellion. Okay. And then yeah. that, his, his dad's yeah, you go try. You become an opera singer and, and, and we'll see how that works out. And of course, <laughs> he comes right back you know, to the family, literally. Because when he decided to become a writer... He returned to Chestertown in 1914 and Washington College, where he worked as an English instructor to pay for his master's degree in drama, which he obtained four years later. By 1917, he had not yet published any of his writings. He was living at home with nothing going on in his career. He pursued a position as a math teacher. Remember, we mentioned that he was really good at math. But the First Mm -hmm. World War came around and he was drafted. But this didn't last very long. Uh, because he was rejected due to respiratory issues. Still holding on to his passion for writing as fruitless as it was, he signed on as a cub reporter for the Baltimore American and was assigned to the police unit. His writing was impressive enough to get him promoted to working on the big stories. In 1918, he left the American and was then hired by the Baltimore Sun, but was drafted again and finally in 1918 and began training at Camp Mead, Maryland. I'm guessing, you know, they needed more people for the draft at this time, going into the late part of the world, War, the First World War, when that's when the Americans became heavily involved. Yeah, 1917, wasn't it? Post-Lusitania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kane was assigned to Combat Unit, 79th Infantry Division, or Joan of Arc and Lorraine Cross Division. 
not even and and even his not so great lungs could prevent him from being drafted. He was present on the front lines, particularly the Battle of Marne, and but he mostly served at HQ, working observational posts as well as the Lorraine Cross newsletter, where he was editor in chief for his company. But he did see action to the extent that he was severely injured in a poison gas attack. Okay. After that wouldn't be good for his respiration. Yeah. After convalescing, he was mustered out of the war following the armistice at Hoboken, New Jersey. I see what you did there, by the way. Wow. See what you did. That that was a good pun. Uh, the the chemical gas, and then he was mustered out. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> nice one. Very very oh, skillful. Nice. I assumed it was chlorine gas, the so-called mustard mm-hmm. gas yeah. that the Germans yeah. used. But anyway, after the war, Kane returned to the Baltimore Sun as a copy editor. In a warlike mindset, he insisted with the editor that he would be assigned to covering stories on the labor movements, citing that Bolsheviks had infiltrated the American working class. Okay, here we go. In, in January 1920, Kane married. Uh, her name was Rebecca Clow, whom he had met in college beforehand. They would divorce in 1927 after a lengthy separation, alas. But before this occurred, in terms of inspiration in his writing, Kane became enthused with the Baltimore writer H.L. Mencken, who at the time was the editor of the literary magazine called The Smart Set. Mm-hmm. According to a biographer, Mencken's style had a profound effect on him. In 1922, he published an essay in The Atlantic entitled The Battleground of Coal. His research for this piece was from his own investigative journalism. He joined the United Mine Works Union and worked in a West Virginia coal mine underground, uh, where he also made in- where also conducted interviewed interviews with workers and management. He would utilize this experience in two later novels, Past All Dishonor and The Butterfly. Soon, Hmm. he would move to Annapolis, using journalism skills to teach it to others as an instructor in journalism and English. Re-entered H.L. Mencken, whom Kane was still corresponding with during this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, He hired Kane to work on his new magazine called The American Mercury. Now, Kane thrived here. Allowing It allowed him to stop teaching altogether and write pieces for Mencken. This bout of creativity was briefly interrupted by a diagnosis of tuberculosis, for which he re- entered a sanatorium and was successfully treated for the affliction. But despite his illness, he was still working, and once he had his clean bill of health, he moved to New York City and began to write deep, biting satire of various institutions and archetypes of Americana. Mm-hmm. Another gig followed this time with editor Walter Lippmann on the New York World. More satirical pieces that were hard-hitting, of course. In 1926, Kane was inspired to write a play called Crashing the Gates, which skewered the evangelical attitudes he encountered during his time in West Virginia. It debuted to mixed reviews and ended its run prematurely. A year later, we know Kane to be divorced from his first wife due to his affair with a divorced Finnish woman named Alina Tezeki, who already had two children from her marriage. This marriage would last longer than the first. They divorced in 1942. But hmm. going back to his career, prior to the end of the second marriage, Kane published his first short story, Pastoral, in 1928. It was about, surprisingly, a murder. It was published in the, by the American Mercury. Even the first yarn was told in the first person. He followed this up in 1931 with a short story collection called Our Government, a kind of a selection of of scripts and dialogues, which was published by Alfred A. Knott. Mm -hmm. Around this time, he was hired onto the the New Yorker after the New York world had been closed down. 
There, he was a managing editor and oversaw the publication of various editors on their staff, such as E.B. White. Okay, so he was a staffer. He wasn't just like a contributor. Exactly. Uh, He did not get along with the editor-in-chief, Harold Ross, and when Paramount Pictures became interested in his writings, they offered him a contract starting at $400 a week. At the time, the studio was was in bankruptcy, Paramount, and they wanted Kane to be part of that revitalization. They wanted to do a remake of the 1923 Cecil B. DeMille epic, uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, but they didn't like what he came up with, and he would soon be shoved off from Hollywood, citing that old phrase, creative differences. (laughs) Yeah. Now unemployed in Los Angeles, he wrote a short story called The Baby in the Icebox, which Mencken published in his American Mercury. It created lots of buzz, and some of the studio heads who had tossed him previously adapted the story to film in 1934, uh, which was called She Made Her Bed. But they did not ask him to write the script. Typical of Hollywood. Then they courted him uh, due to his growing popularity. Uh, Harry Cohn of Columbia offered him some work, but Kane was unable to produce anything. By the end of his career, only in two films, Stand Up and Fight and Wildcat, is he listed as a screenwriter. So he did get back to the workings on scripts in Hollywood, but first he had to establish his writing career. It is clear at this moment that he had all the experience behind him, the social journalistic approach, his mastery of the first-person narrative, to be specific, to write his first novel. This was our boy here, uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice. His old connections paid off. Walter Littman, in particular, backed him, and so did Elford Knopf. The establishment of his first-person confessional style, The Postman Always Rings Twice, rocked the literary scene after its publication in 1934. To this day, it has sold millions of copies, now considered a bestseller. Uh, Kane had the spark to attempt another play despite the failure of crashing the gates, but the play never got off the ground like its source material. It opened to poor reviews and, like crashing the gates, was eventually cancelled after just under 100 performances. I should clarify... Uh, that is a play, that is basically a theatrical version of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, it was able to work as a novel, but in terms of as a production, a theatrical production, it, it just was intangible at the time. So he tried his hand at novel writing again, and this time with Double Indemnity in 1936. It was published first in, Liber- in Liberty Magazine. And it was a sensation, and, pu- and it was published as a novella in 1943. It fell under scrutiny of writer-director Billy Wilder, who, with Raymond Chandler, of course, uh, wrote and directed its adaptation, probably one of the greatest film noirs, uh, which I talked about earlier. The follow-up novel, Serenade, rekindled his earlier ambition to become an opera singer because it was just about that, an opera and an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Even his next novel, Mildred Pierce, uh, which was made, of course, into the famous film noir slash woman's picture starring Joan Crawford, directed by uh, Michael Curtiz. Uh, it features a character who wants to be an opera singer. For those who've seen Mildred Pierce or read the book, you probably know a character we're talking about. Uh, probably one of the most reviled characters, I would say, in uh, American cinema around that time. <laughs> um, so it seemed to be a personal obsession creeping into his work, this opera thing, or this ambition that he just couldn't connect and if you recall, uh, when we talk about The Postman Always Rings Twice, a certain character in this story had the voice of an opera singer, a Caruso mm-hmm. even. That's so, true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it seemed to be a personal obsession with his, in his work, and, and that, of course, his love colloquial dialogue uh, excelled everything. Um, 
that first person narration and dealing with characters who are down in their luck but are not necessarily worthy of our empathy that that that's james <laughs> and kane to the t yeah well there's a lot of that in this book so as I mentioned, he would go on and still work in Hollywood writing scripts, but he only really had two films that were uh, released that had it listed as a screenwriter. He would just, you know, he would do that and he would work on novels throughout his career. Uh, he wrote novels up until his uh, death in 1977 at the age of 85. He left no issue. Uh, he was married four times in total. The third marriage was with an actress and that ended bitterly. And his third mm-hmm. and his fourth marriage, it lasted. Uh, only due to his partner dying in 1966, and as I said, he wrote until his uh, t- till his death in 1977, a bastion of 20th century American literature. Hmm. But probably now pigeonholed as a crime writer and as a hard boiled dude, you know, like it, like these uh, these other stories, Serenade and other novels, which are probably lesser known because. As often happens, right, with writers, they got one or two big texts, particularly if they're adapted into very successful films and part of a, a genre trend. All of a sudden, yeah. that's who you are as an artist. That's who you are. And, of course, we, we know that the, the edges of those definitions are really quite blurry and never, never really sharply yeah. defined. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like, uh, sounds, sounds like he did all right for himself. But on the personal side, four marriages generally signifies... Um, and I'm not I'm not passing any judgment here, but I mean generally, it signifies trouble with compromise, a trouble, trouble. Yeah, a mercurial spirit, trouble with compromise, trouble with settling down, trouble with um, being one thing for everyone, uh, letting go of a side of yourself that you you feel is entitled. There would have been some demons in there for sure, as there are. And you with can any, see how he would apply that figure. into his writing. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, just, uh, speak, unfocused, yeah. unfocused, like jumping back and forth and trying different things. Like he was definitely someone who was kind of like a drifter in terms of employment, you know, and vocation. And he, 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 I think he just tried to find something he was comfortable with and he would stick to it. And then once, you know, it became too burdensome or it was or there was something that just wasn't connecting with him anymore. He moved on to something else. You know, he was always mm-hmm. wanting to he was always kind of not satisfied with his with his current situation and. It goes back, I think, to his being skipped ahead two grades. He was bored at, at math. He was bored at sciences. And he didn't excel in them uh, in terms of his grades. But it it, it just, I, I think he was just maybe... Restless, impatient. Yeah. Restless and, restless and Constricted. impatient individual. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, interesting figure anyway. You cut it up. Uh, thank you for those fast facts, Josh. I think what we'll do now, if you're cool with it, is we'll slide on over to a summary. Uh, to our listeners, if uh, you're familiar with the story, really familiar, and you don't feel you need a summary, or indeed you don't want to listen to one, then just skip ahead 15 minutes or so, and we'll get you on the other side of my summary. Either way, we'll get you at the other end of this to light our pipes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our narrator, Frank Chambers, is a drifter used to living rough and loving fast. He's done his spates in jail for minor misdemeanors and is just dawsing about looking for work on the road. He gets thrown off a hay truck in the novel's very first sentence and walks a short distance to the Twin Oaks Tavern, a roadside bar and restaurant in Nowheresville, California. Well, actually, we're only about 20 miles outside of Los Angeles here, but it sure does feel isolated. The tavern is run by a Greek guy named Nick Papadakis, who has a wife with a, quote, sulky look, 
and lips ready to be mashed in. Insert your own rough lust fantasy montage here. Now, we're not even two pages into this story, and we know Frank is besotted. Short, declarative sentences tell us all that we need to know. Then I saw her. Her name is Cora, for what it's worth. Well, Nick is in need of help around the joint, and Frank is only too happy to oblige. He and Cora don't waste much time under Kane's pen. The two strike up a fast and furious affair, page 9 to be exact, and for the next little while, every time a sandwich is made in the kitchen or a pot of coffee is brewed, it seems like the two characters are on top of each other. Cora confides in Frank that she can't stand Nick, never quite sure why. I mean, he seems all right to us, if a little old-fashioned on the page. But she calls him greasy and is terrified to have a baby with him. She explains, vaguely, that she went in with the Greek, Kane's moniker, not ours, to escape the groupy, dark side of Hollywood rejection society and all that comes with it. She sought out and found the other end of the spectrum, a boring security and steady work as a pretty hand and a waitress. After a short while, though, her vitality and her lofty ambitions, also vaguely sketched by Kane, felt hemmed in and seemed too greedy for the myopic, this-is-good-enough life offered by Papadakis. Okay, so Cora's life plans aren't really what's driving this book's action. It's the passion between her and Frank. For 1934, it's shocking, really, forcibly and brutally, well, Frank. In him, Cora sees an adventure and an escape from the Greek, maybe even a chance at something better. We're going along with this because we want to see what happens. We suspect Frank is a pretty rotten dude, or at least shady enough to stop grass from growing. In Cora, Frank sees foremost infatuation, though love does come later. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So as I mentioned, Cora confides in Frank that she wants out. She must sense in him a nonchalance that borders on the manic, because she hitches him to a plan to exterminate Nick from the world. It's fairly ruthless, too. Now, you'd be forgiven for asking, why doesn't she just leave him? Why doesn't she just hit the road with Frank? I mean, he's a drifter. He'd not care. And that way, she'd not be a murderer. Well, that's a good question. The only answer that Kane gives us seems to pivot around those vague ambitions that Cora reveals as the plot stretches out. She wants the business. Why settle for a roadside fill-up in a restaurant when you can aim for a roadside fill-up with a beer garden and a nightclub? Okay, sure, we'll go along with it. But it's worth noting that this is a point of subtle conflict between the two of them. Frank goes as far as telling Cora, quote, He never did anything to me. He's all right. But not to Cora. We see a bit of her mania here as she explains to Frank that wearing a smock is beneath her and she'd not have him working to support an Autobody man. I guess Frank is flattered. He decides to go along with the plan anyway. It's fairly simple. While Nick is bathing, Cora will sneak up behind him and bludgeon him, and then Frank will join, and they'd hold the Greek under until he drowned. Now, the whole thing would look like a slip, knock, and drown accident. So Frank sets the ladder up from the drive to the upstairs window and waits for the sign. But just as Cora is preparing to do it, a cop pulls up and asks Frank what he's doing lurking around outside. Well, scunnered, Frank knows that the cop sees the ladder, but both are distracted by the stray cat. <laughs> the stray cat comes out of nowhere and climbs up the ladder. So the cop drives away, but 
all the power to the joint cuts and the light disappears. The plan is spoiled. A blackout. But poor Papadakis has suffered a bludgeon from behind, remember? So Cora has no choice but to call an ambulance because that nosy cop saw too much. Well, wouldn't you know it? First on the scene of the emergency call Cora makes is that very same cop. But the would-be killers get quite lucky. There's a dead cat lying prostrate, all fours in the air, under the fuse box. It seems that the cat burst the fuse, skulking around, so the slip and fall in the dark excuse is easier to believe. Incidentally, find me another story in the annals of literary history that include a convenient cat hitting a fuse box after climbing a ladder to get the killers off. And I'll, I'll buy you a beer if you find me that story. Well, for the next week or so, while Nick recovers in hospital from his fractured skull, Frank and Cora elevate the affair. For a flashed spell, Cora warms to hitting the road and almost does, but turns back after a quarter mile. Call it moral compass, call it shame, call it fear of the unknown, but she just can't do it. So they split there on the road. Cora goes back and Frank continues on to San Bernardino with a mind set on Mexico. Well... After a single paragraph of being without her, Frank's love lust wins over his wanderlust, and he returns to Glendale. He bums around the pool rooms and the market, hoping to catch a glimpse of the Greek or Cora herself. His wish comes true pretty quickly as well. Nick Papadakis notices Frank from a distance, runs across the street, and jovially confronts him on why he left. Please come back. There's lots to do. Look at this skull fracture, Frank. Let's have some steaks, etc., he invites Frank to a fiesta in Santa Barbara that he's attending the next day with Cora for a fun day out. Frank agrees to go, so long as Cora is cool with it. And just like that, Kane has wedged the love triangle in again. Well, Cora is cool and keeps her distance from Frank upon his return. Frank apologizes for not being man enough to return with his pool earnings, but she doesn't really seem surprised or disappointed. Frank stays up late that night, following his thumping heart to the kitchen for a chance to see Cora again. And he does, but not as he would like. She's standing there in the dark with a large knife in her hand. Nick's determination to have a family has pushed Cora to the brink. She can't imagine having greasy Nick kids and is preparing to end her life. Instead, Frank helps Cora hatch a plan number two against Nick. And this time, Kane relays it in a more retrospective fashion than he did with the first. On a stretch of highway above Malibu, they beat Nick to death with a wrench. There's some heavy-handed foreshadowing here, masked by good metaphorical writing, as Kane makes use of the valley's echoes, repeating Nick's last howls and grunts. But none of this stops Nick from dying. Frank and Cora drive a bit on, agree to a story, and then set a scene inside the car with smashed glass and wine before manufacturing their own injuries through a series of punches and ripped clothing. The next stage of their plan involves Frank returning to the car and Cora running up to the roadside for help. Unexpectedly, the car moves and crushes Frank while he climbs back in. He falls unconscious. When he wakes, he is in a lot of pain and he thinks he's been paralyzed, but the scenes are a bit too flashy to be certain. Spoiler, he's not. Frank is taken to hospital, though, where, upon waking, he's told there will be an inquest on account of Nick's death. Frank's not too concerned about this. He knows that the inquest isn't a real trial, and he even goes as far as smudging up his story a little bit to confuse things for later on. He thinks it'll work to his favor. Mr. Sackett, district attorney, appears in the evening, however, and Kane really uses this as a launching point in the narrative. 
what felt and read simply before, a linear plot of characters following their lust to avoid their fears, now becomes a legal chess game involving professional minds and schemers more clever than themselves. In their interview, Sackett disarms Frank by reading right through him. He's seen Cora. He can appreciate Frank's attraction. He knows a one-two punch when he sees it, and introduces the discovery of the Greek's insurance policy to lubricate the theory of why they chose to off him. Sackett talks Frank into circles and sweats, and he convinces him to sign a confession which would land Cora in the sauce. Frank's feeling pretty shameful about being so yellow, and the lowly cop watching him in the hospital tells him he's going to need good representation, and he knows a fellow named Katz who's worth calling. Frank asks him to make the call, and before long, a 40-year-old little guy with a leathery face and a black mustache appears at the hospital. Well, if Sackett was a... Well, if Sackett was a python, Katz is a rattlesnake. He listens, sort of, while Frank tells him that he doesn't believe Cora did anything and he shouldn't have signed that confession. Well, Katz tells him, I'll handle it. Whatever I do, I'm handling it. Funny, given how the next few pages are going to play out, guilty pleas, insurance company testimonies, California motor code citations, signed confessions, scammer accusations, accidental death payouts, retracted pleas. Those words of Katz, I'll handle it, whatever I do, I'm handling it. They might as well be Kane speaking directly to us, the reader, for we're about as confused as Frank and Cora. Kane is relentless here across the span of 20 pages, and Frank and Cora's shared confusions vividly stand in for the reader's own. In the melee and fervor of being outsiders in a big legal classroom, Cora lets her emotions get the better of her. She is fuming at Frank for being bullied into pinning it on her, so she makes a statement to Katz about the whole thing, confessing to the crime and bearing the truth of their murderous collaboration. Well, this is going to come back to haunt her later on. Katz gets Cora acquitted the next day, and both characters are free. Katz reveals his joy at getting one over on Sackett and thanks them for the fun 24 hours. Relieved, but heads still spinning, Cora and Frank return to the diner and lay low. Now, you might expect for things to have cooled between them, given the storm of betrayal and shame and confession that's just played out, but that coolness doesn't last too long. After a short conversation of apology, Frank, quote, ripped off all their clothes and describes Cora as, quote, the great-grandmother of every whore in the world. Not most people's idea of love and forgiveness, but all right. For the next six months, life and partnership evolve around the diner while the spirit of the Greek's murder and its aftermath dissipate. Cora then gets a telegram that her mother is sick, so she rushes off to her in Iowa. Frank drives her to the train and tells us that he felt, quote, made of gas and like floating off somewhere. Well, he sure does, and fast. Like Merle Haggard, Frank's got rambling fever in his blood. He picks up a girl in the parking lot of the station. Yeah, for real, the train station. Her name is Madge Kramer, and she can't get her car started. So Frank's suggestion isn't so much to help her with that as to convince her to head off to Mexico for a spell. Maybe Nicaragua, as you do. Well, Madge is in the story only long enough to reveal her passion for cats and training big pumas and jaguars, sometimes for movies, sometimes for rich folk. It's all the same to her. It's a weird tryst and one that Kane shoehorns in to plant a bit more plot surprise. Frank's not long with her before he decides on scuffing back to wait for Cora. No matter the fever, 
He just can't ramble very far from her. When Cora gets back from Iowa, Frank lies to her about taking a trip to San Francisco and needing to close the business. Not sure why. It doesn't really appease his conscience for Madge. Anyway, after pretty soon, a guy named Kennedy shows up at the Twin Oaks, claiming to have worked with cats. Well, getting to the point, while cleaning out the office, he came across that signed statement that Cora gave cats in the heat of her anger towards Frank. He proceeds to blackmail them for it, to the tune of all they're worth, plus a little more. Frank doesn't waste much time in flipping his script and beating them to a pulp. He coerces Kennedy to call his cronies and accelerate arrangements for the payoff. When they arrive the next morning with the document, they're ambushed and Frank sends them packing. He and Cora burn the statement, the only existing proof of their crime, and things nearly return to abnormal. Well, they might have anyway. Had Madge not shown up at the diner, unbeknownst to Frank and the reader, with a telltale story for Cora about a week in Mexico and a pet puma kitten as a parting gift. So, Frank gets scunnered by a cat twice. Cora gives him the cold shoulder, but still shares his bed. They lie together in the night, dreaming up ways of killing each other, but Cora buries the hatchet in shallow ground the next day by revealing her pregnancy. Frank warms to the idea of becoming a family man, and they rush off to marry at City Hall. But Cora is still talking about death and being killed, and tells Frank that if he's to kill her, she wants it to be done in the ocean while she's swimming. Well, to tempt fate, they go swimming near Santa Monica, but Frank certainly has no intention of killing her. He's converted now, an ex-con killer turned determined dad in the making. Suddenly, Cora falls faint and anxious. She fears a miscarriage. Confused and panicking, Frank tows her and then carries her to shore and settles on driving her to the hospital. He overtakes a big truck, but doesn't see the culvert wall. Frank wakes to the dripping sound of Cora's blood from the windshield. She's dead. And him? Well, Kane switches to the present tense for this last section of text, and Frank's narrating the story from death row. He has been the whole time. It turns out that when she had planned to leave him, Cora wrote a note and left it for him in the cash register. It was a sweet note, but the register was never checked. But the cops checked it after her death. It revealed enough of their murderous scheme against Nick to get them both hanged. Well, Cora doesn't need hanged, but Frank sure could do with one. Now, he's not afraid of dying, but he is desperate to write the record with Cora in the afterlife and to convince her that his love is real. He hopes to get a chance to do that once he leaves this mortal coil. Frank ends his story by appealing to us for prayers in his final moments. Send one up for me, he says, and Cora, and make it that we're together. Thus ends the narrative of The Postman Always Rings Twice. All right, solid breakdown, Scott. Solid breakdown. Now, shall we remind the listeners uh, what our PIPES acronym stands for? Yes, so P is for principles. I is for investigation, which is the narrative, essentially. Uh, P is for perpetrators. Every great mystery story has perpetrators. Although this isn't really kind of a mystery story because we know exactly who the <laughs> culprits are. Uh, we still have, we're still, we're still forcing it into this, into the parameters that we've established from the beginning. Abs- oh, of course. When we, we started are, with yeah. Sherlock Holmes and now we're taking on uh, different categories of the mystery genre here. Uh, then we have E for environs. And then we have 
S for supporting cast, supporting players. That's it. All five of the letters there uh, give us an index when we rank them out of five that we use to rate and rank the stories. Um, not that it's always about the ranking, but it's it's fun to compare how we've done. And uh, perhaps somewhere this season, Josh, we'll, we'll look back and we'll dig out all the old ratings and we'll see see how many we've done and, and kind of where they all fit on the on the sliding scale of our hierarchy here on lighting the pipes. It's kind of like a money ball thing where we'd look at all the scoring afterwards and, and make, yeah, make yeah. kind of like an obsession, a whole uh, n- like nerddom out of that is those numbers that are created. You know what I mean? Yeah. Data's good. It's fun to play yeah. with data. Well, I was having a discussion someone the other day about baseball because a friend of mine, uh, mm-hmm. he recently watched the Blue Jays opener in Toronto against the Detroit Tigers like last week. Uh, so, right. Anyways, yep. Yep. one thing I've learned about it, ba- about baseball nowadays, is that uh, they apparently pitchers only have 15 seconds to pitch a ball. Okay, right. So they're speeding them up a bit. Yes, that moves the game along. But what's really interesting about that to me is that you have these baseball stats, which are based upon the older methods of managing the players on the field. And if you watch, if, mm-hmm, if, if, mm-hmm. if you go back in the past and think of any baseball game you watched, either on TV or in the stadium, there's always that moment of the pitcher shuffling his feet or moving his feet around, or he's about to pitch, mm-hmm. but then he kind of moves. And then he just kind of like looks around or looks up and down or something like that, right? And mm-hmm, because he's mm-hmm, ma- mm-hmm. because what he's doing is he's focusing on how he's going to pitch his ball. What exactly is his strategy here as a pitcher in the game? And so to me... It takes out this dimension of, of 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 how the stats are going to be interpreted in the future, because now we're taking out the planning it takes to put into a pitch into the ball game. If you uh-huh. catch my drift, or you're accelerating it at least. Yeah. Yes. So I yeah. wonder how much that's, that's going to right. change into stats. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's my crack because... theory of the, of of the episode, but. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, sort of like Athena from Zeus's brow. It came from somewhere, somewhere in this story, uh, in this podcast. Okay. Uh, okay. I don't know. Right. But anyways, in terms Neither of scoring, I. in terms of terms of numbers, I thought that was just an interesting thing to present. And of course, talking about American literature and what's a greater connection to American literature than baseball. So. That's true. Yeah. Bringing it back. All right. Well, uh, let's start with a P then, my friend, for lighting the pipes. This is our principles. And with the postman always rings twice, the principles are also your perpetrators. In a way. But yeah. we don't necessarily have to score them the same. No. But, I mean, it's it's tempting to uh, in terms of, like, if you know, if you don't want to put effort into it. I, I think you got to kind of look at the characters uh, <laughs> as perpetrators in a different way. You look at them as principles. And you have to define them a different way. Like, because are they actually perpetrators or are they principles? Because now we're dealing with, you know, mm. uh, crime fiction in the sense of we're not dealing with detective protagonists. We're dealing with morally conflicted individuals, people who we have to be made sympathetic to, but at the same time are not great people. Well, listen, buddy, before I ask you about Frank and Cora, I'm curious, do you see the Greek in any way? Do you see Nick Papadakis as a principal in this story? No, I see him as a supporting character. Okay, so it's Nick, so it's Cora and Frank that you're concentrating on for your scoring of principles here. Yes, I would say that, that also the, that the fact that I'm looking at them as principles that kind of affected my scoring of this category. Okay, well, why don't you start then? You, you tell us what you thought of uh, Frank and Cora—that's principles in this novel. Uh, 
I would say of the two principles, Frank is definitely the strongest, but that's inevitable because it's a first person confessional narrative. Mm -hmm. So obviously mm -hmm. he's our storyteller. He our storyteller yeah. So we have the most bias with him. We get his inner workings through the dialogue and the writing that uh, James and Kane presents to us. So we really have no choice, but to see it that way. Uh, Frank, I mean, he's skeevy as fuck. Uh, he is. Yeah. Yeah, let's just say it. Yeah. yeah. He's a tramp. He has no grounding. Uh, he's a cane, pun not intended, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it is, wandering mm. the Dust Bowl and, mm. and going westward. And he's just getting by with what scraps that he can find. And when he wants something, yeah. he just goes for it because he believes he's entitled to it. I believe he confuses his lust and infatuation and possessiveness for love. Like, I, I believe that he, he, mm. he yearns to find love in whatever kind of ideal that he's created for it but it's really just luck yeah. and obsession in in my view uh you know because he cares not for nick's kindness and offering him a job he's like polite about it well thanks for offering me a job guy this is going to give me food and this is going to give me food and access to a beautiful woman that i'm lusting after so thank yeah. you very much nick That's for right. that i appreciate that but uh <laughs> with very little motivation i will kill you just so that i can be with your wife so, yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, so to me, like he becomes besotted with his boss's wife and it doesn't take much convincing on her part to get him to play ball and murder his, his generous employer. Uh, in the end, you know, the, this guise of head over heels romanticism uh, that Kane to me is sardonically evoking is laid bare when Frank agrees with cats to throw Cora to the wolves this, the fact that they breeze the trial yeah. and get back together despite this betrayal proves of his obsession with her. And it's one of the aspects I'll get into when it comes to the investigation, the narrative that affected my rating as well of that category. Now, Cora, she's a small town girl, Iowa born, was she was used by the Hollywood machine and trapped in a life of domesticity back to the point where she wanted to kill herself she is sulky, yes, but that is because she's bitter and angry. It's not just some sort of pout that he's supposed to turn Frank on. It's because she's bitter and angry. Uh, Nick tried to do her good in marrying her, but that was just a stepping stone for her that became a cage. Why is she True, yeah. but she did choose it for herself. Like that that's the thing that I find really difficult with Cora to reconcile is that her her her, her disgruntled nature is is a product of her own choices. And while you could say that there were a lot of women hemmed in, in the yeah, similar for way who went out to Hollywood, uh, you know, they, they went out to Hollywood to try to find stardom or even, you know, some success. And then they ended up just kind of making do. Mm -hmm. I, I can see that, you know, that it's not, you know, she's a victim as much as she is a chooser in her, in her path. But, you know, Nick's not a bad guy. No. And I think Kane writes him quite cleverly to be, or so that the writer sympathizes with and then sympathizes with him and then criticizes Cora and Frank Heavier for their decisions. But I, I don't know, like, uh, do you see her as a victim or do you see her as an instigator or like responsible? I mean, she's responsible for her actions. I, I think okay, yeah, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, in, in your uh, lovely summary there, why she doesn't just walk away, you know, uh, might have something to do with the mores of the time where you can't leave your husband that you're married to, right? 
the thing the situation mm-hmm. is I can see if Chambers yeah. absconded with his wife and Nick, who is a figure in the community, albeit a foreign figure, they it could have possibly led to a manhunt to get her back, uh, which could mm-hmm. have ended. Which That's could have true. had an, yeah. a, 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 sure. a different type of tragic ending for the two lovers here, uh, quote unquote lovers. But I think, I think sh- she resents Nick for this because she has to rely on him. And I think you know, I'm thinking of you know of her isolated Iowa background and coming to Hollywood and stuff like that and being unable to deal. Maybe she's. I would say even Kane is communicating this. And tell me if you disagree or not. I think she's racist. And mm. remember just the idea of like where she mm. she assumed that Frank thought that she was Mexican and how coiled up she got about that and how she was just, just so dismissive of the idea of it, even though like Frank was kind of trying to back up that idea, you know, oh, you got the beautiful teeth of a Mexican woman and stuff like that, while also being racist, describing um, uh, a caricature of Mexican women in particular at, mm. at, in, in that in that instance. But the thing is that, like, she doesn't want his greasiness. He doesn't want his greasy children. Like, to me, it's mm-hmm, her mm-hmm. trying to, like, she, she doesn't want to be attached to whatever that Nick is offering her. She she wants to separate. She, she feels like she's losing her identity and her personality being being tethered to Nick in this fashion. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't read her as as kind of overtly uh, selective in her racism. I mean, she's pretty prejudiced in well, general. Yes. You know? Well, I mean, it's also the time period we have to consider, too. It's yeah, Absolutely. You're right. Yeah, it's a time period that we have to a- accept. And I'm wondering how much of that is filtered through Kane's own experience, you know, as a descendant of immigrants and, and whatnot. Yeah. Like, because c- that sort of um, xenophobic response is, is quite curious at a time like this with the Dust Bowl. You've got travelers and immigrants and settlers coming, you know, not quite the same way that you did during the uh, Oregon Trail right. days, but uh, you do have you do have a lot of movement in the Dust Bowl and through California. You so do. it's it's really interesting. I don't know where her attitudes come from, buddy. I don't know. Um, I, I definitely picked up on the kind of racial intolerance, uh, but that raises questions when you consider she chose to marry, even if it was a mistake, or even if she wishes she hadn't. She got close enough to Nick to marry him and to accept that life for herself if she was really poisonously racist, uh, not just kind of xenophobic towards or critical of Mexicans or whatever, that I, I can't see her laying, laying down with a Greek. I, I, I don't yeah. know. I, it's, you know I don't it's a good point. I would say that it's curious. There, there's definitely some prejudice in her. I think that can be argued. But it's also her racism could just be like an extension of her disgust of being in the situation that she's in. And it, mm, it, it's a way true. of making yeah. him an other to dehumanize him so that she won't have too much guilt in killing him. That's that's an excellent point. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. By, by othering him, uh, you can kind of distance yourself from any sense of, well, it was an equal human that we're getting rid of, you know? Yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah, by, by characterizing him as an ugly, greasy, filthy, animalistic character, it, it helps a little bit in... Um, downplaying the importance or significance of the murder itself, at least in those kind of twisted, prejudiced visions, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, going back to Frank Chambers, uh, he's definitely sociopathic, but he may not realize that mm-hmm. he is. I think the life that he's lived has made him sociopathic in his own way. And it also shows back in the time period of the Dust Bowl where people were very desperate uh, to find a footing in life outside of what they've always mm, been doing. Yeah. And I think it was his dream beyond anything to get someone like Cora and settle down somewhere 
And that's why I think in the end, he's even though like there's a sociopathic aspect and a selfishness to their love, I think Frank and Cora kind of love each other in their own twisted way. And she wants to him that like she wants him to get her out of her situation. And she uses him in that fashion, just as he kind of uses her to get himself out of possible a death sentence at the trial. And Mm. so they're willing to betray each other, but at the same time, they still have feelings for each other. And when all is said and done, they were willing to kind of get away and have that child and, and live happiness and enjoy their, and, you know, live in the regular day life. Even though Frank wanted to get away, they still had their own career ambitions separate from their desires. And I think they're excellently written in this fashion where they're, they're walking contradictions. And to me, that makes them, to me, it makes them very well thought out into uh, characters on the page uh, that I can do my best to sympathize with because, because Kane gives me enough, I think enough rope to say like, I'm curious as to see what their fates are. I will not shed a tear for these people, but I, I sympathize with how pathetic they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their plight, yeah, their plight is is magnetic, I suppose, yes. more than their personalities. Yes. Uh, do you do you feel that um, Frank? And I'm not asking you to project, and I'm not asking you to create. Just instinctively, do you think that Frank is a traumatized figure? Like we don't learn much about his upbringing, we don't learn much about his decisions yeah. as a younger man. Do you think he's he suffered trauma? I would say he has. I mean, given the life that he lived, who knows? Like, who knows what he did, you know, to get by in certain places that he went to. Um, so it's hard to say, and there's a lot of people out there who will take advantage of people like him as well. So he's had fights with, with railway worker, with railway inspectors. We know that in the past, we know he's had dealings with the law. He's escaped the noose at least Mm -hmm. once or twice. So we know for a fact that, you know, he was always a a dead man walking in his own way. And it was, and in the world that he lives in, he cannot have the ideal that he's been searching for. And he feels that he's entitled to it. And screw everybody else for him so that he could get it you know i think he sees himself as someone yeah. who is a good guy deep down but part of him knows that he's not at the same time and it's it's very interesting how oblivious he is to his own moral failures because we have a moment here where in a way in the story where he literally mentions like i'm literally lying with satan i am and i'm happy to do mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. that's that equals my happiness so there is that sociopathic aspect to him, but uh, it's, it's very interestingly sketched out. And I think that's what makes it very strong to me. I think though, in terms of my marking, I took half a mark off my, my rating for this category for the principles uh, because while we get Frank's whole picture through the confessional, despite, as you said, some childhood background that we can kind of only really construct in her mind as to what led him to be where he is you get that subtle feeling that we're not getting everything from him, that he might be hiding just a faucet in his confection, in his confessional, that he's not being totally honest, but maybe mm-hmm. he wants yeah. to feel that way. So he's lying to himself in a way about what kind of person that he is. Cora um, to mm-hmm. me remains an enigma. Is she a sociopath that would seduce Frank kind of enjoys him, or maybe she does love him in a twisted way. Does she hate Nick and want to kill him and inherit his restaurant and turn it into a beer garden slash nightclub? And that was her ultimate mm-hmm. goal. Yeah. Uh, there's so many different things going on about Cora where we can only speculate based on what Frank is telling us about her in his confessional. So we can put together between the lines about what Cora is always about. 
that she just wants to use people to get to her next station in life and feel ju- and feel justified by it. So in a way, she's kind of a female version of Frank. So maybe they're two peas in a pod. I don't know. Um, but there's just a little bit left out of like the writing of the principles. And I, there's just like something, just a little skosh of something missing that I just need to make it all kind of like, you know, yes, you know, like all connect for me. So I only gave it four and a half out of five. Only four and a half. All right. Five. Yeah, that, that that's still a very very high mark. Um, I didn't go that high with the principles. I'm really I'm really glad to hear you talk of them, uh, you know, quite quite favorably. I found that the chaos in their relationship uh, made them quite interesting. It made them interesting to read, as you said. Maybe you're not going to shed a tear for them, but you you will find them interesting. Yes. And yeah, they are they are like kind of two trains crashing at the night, and everybody wants to see you know a train crash, right? As much as you don't, you do want to see the crash. Uh, you're drawn to it. And I think we're drawn to these characters in in the same sort of a way. I don't think that they're as richly written, though, as I would like. There is, I think, those questions, or there are those questions I have about Frank's upbringing that might explain why he is he's okay to go along with this. I think Frank is actually, I think he is a nice guy. I think there's a nice guy in there. Like, he doesn't want to kill Nick. He says, the guy never did anything to me. He seems all right. Actually, he's given me work. He's given me work twice. He's, he's taken me out. He's, you know, we're having meals, we're drinking, we're, you know, he's, he's a good fella and a really tough time. I mean, this is, this is the, this is the depression in the United States, 1930s. This is, you know, the Dust Bowl, as you said. This is Steinbeck's driest era. Yeah. This is tough living in the United States. And an immigrant, no less, an immigrant makes a nest for this traveler to step into. I mean, I don't think we can over-egg the, um, the pudding, or I don't think we can you know, say too much on just how deep the betrayal is and just how generous this guy comes across because he's not just a nice guy at a time of plenty he's a nice guy at a time of great struggle and hardship and i think the death of nick is something that um you know frank just kind of agrees to because he's got the horn for cora and yeah this this, let's do it let's just go on i'll do it with you then that's fine because you know you're you're sexy and and uh I'm, i'm liking what we got going here so i'll go along with it He's all wrapped up in in the, in the fervor of of love and whatnot, and or of lust, mm-hmm. I should say. And he's he's magnetized to trouble. He's drawn to trouble, yeah. right? I get that. But the fact that he and Cora are so chaotic, and the fact that they're difficult to sympathize with, uh, and the fact that I have these questions, these questions of, you know, why? And like, see, see, the last time we read this book, or last time we we did an episode, we looked at that uh, that very very challenging text um uh, the triumph of the spider monkey and we were talking about <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the chaotic nature of bobby goatson uh Godison as a character well you know i find that carol oates although she's disowned the story she does sprinkle in there enough about these characters where they come or enough about bobby where he comes from to maybe understand mm. where the mania comes from where his decision-making comes from, where his badness comes from. But Frank here, a lot of it's left off the page. And I guess that goes with, you know, uh, a vagrant's life. It's consistent with a vagrant character. Uh, But I would like to have seen a bit more of him developed so that it was more than just lust. I mean, Mm -hmm. more than just sexual sexual connection. You know, I I would. So anyway, I went, uh, uh, I, I went, 
down a full mark. I was a 3.5 from from you, which is still a you know still a passing score. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, there were too many questions and and a little too 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 much recklessness in the characters. Uh, I don't mind the aimlessness, but the recklessness mm-hmm. without some conversation. Even if this is, as we learn, a death row confessional, the crime is never confessed to in in a way that that you know there's contrition. Mm-hmm. There's never any sort of regret. It, he never wishes he never did it. And when we get to the end of the book, we realize this guy is just completely fixated on Cora. It's all about Cora for him. It was Cora, Cora, Cora. It's not even like, let me stop and tell you about why I wish I hadn't done that. Or now that I'm looking back, I, I really shouldn't have done that. Or maybe if we had done it that way, things would have been different. It's just totally focused on R- Cora. Ride this or die. vision is extreme. Yeah. Ride or die, buddy. And I feel like... Gosh, he, he is the ultimate is, simp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the ultimate sin. No, yeah, that's a good Ozzy Osbourne too. I was going to say no, 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 not sin. Um, simp. Oh, simp. Yeah, yeah that's gotcha. like a mod, that's yeah, like this sure. modern term. Totally. You know that. I think it's used pejoratively of a lot to, for someone like it's used by some circles to say that you're not an alpha, you're a beta type male and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. But yeah. in this particular situation, this is obsession taken to a new level. And that to me is simp- that yeah. to me is simping what, what, what the way I see it is anyway. Yeah. Okay. So you're at a four and a half. I'm at a three and a half for the principles. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to investigation. This, this was my highest mark. Okay. Um, I give Kane credit here for the pace uh, and the fury of the text. I do find that interesting. It had the characters maybe, you know, being, differently sketched then the pace and the fury wouldn't have hit the same way i appreciate that but um everything fits here in the story even the confusing middle section with the authorities and the insurance features and the the solicitors trying to you know get the better of each other all of that stuff he makes his principles as confused as his readers and i think that's deliberate on his part and i credit him for that um I think that he's suggesting something pretty profound here, actually, and maybe this is giving credit where credit isn't due, but, you know, we can we can play that game as readers. And I think that he's trying to suggest something about law and business and how they're just as corrupt and self-serving as people who had do violent crime. You know, I, I think that's there for us to read. Oh, yeah. Sackett and Katz, you know, they, he, they see these two naive players, don't they? They just go for them. Um, yeah. So do or so would insurance men or women or figures who profit uh, or kind of secure bottom line, yeah. you know, over m- moral, the, um, moral good, moral decisions, you know, or um, moral. Uh, what am I trying to say? They, they're interested in securing the bottom line above, above um, goodness. Yes. If you'll accept that term, you're really seeing. I think, like we talked about, Dashiell Hammett, you know, and his writings. Now we know M. Cain predates Chandler's releases of the Marlowe novels. So we know here that it was both Hammett, I think, and James N. Kane that really introduced the notion of the corrupt institutions mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. political figures in crime fiction, uh, even more so than, say, Arthur Conan Doyle did or Agatha Christie did. It was these writers, mm-hmm. Hammett and also James N. Kane that really introduced the decaying institutions uh, edifices, you know, that were, that society is built upon is so corrupt that it will allow someone like, will allow people like Frank and Cora to get off scot-free uh, due to all mm-hmm. of these, whether it's politically expedient to let them go uh, or to save, you know, a public prosecutor's pride. Uh, everything is done in a, yeah, certain, yeah. in a certain way so that the system always wins. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's, it's kind of like it goes that whole notion of like you can't beat the system. You can only play and survive in it. Very, very kind of like the wire, you know, in that fashion where it's like you're a player in the game, but you're just a pawn. And even though you think you're on top mm-hmm. and you're going for your ideal, just like Frank was Frank did in the end, he's just a pawn of the system. He, yeah, he 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 was obsessed with a woman, and that led him to the path. That, but at the same time. It's so amusing in a way how Frank gets Frank and Cora get off scot free, and then of course leads to their inevitable end. Not due to the being, you know, ex, like Cora, she 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 doesn't pay for her crime in terms of uh, the, the 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 judicial system. She's not killed off by Kennedy and his uh, cohorts in, in the extortion scheme. I think Cora in the end is killed off in a way because it's it's poetically significant to the story that she dies the way that she does Th- thematically significant would, would be a better way to say it yeah okay so you, we do agree though right like you do agree that kane is doing something with institutional corruption here that uh, oh yeah that, that we're spotting we're seeing yeah as for the relationship the other part of the narrative i suppose um it, it's lustful it's striking but kind of like kind of like uh, starbursts or like supernova or something it's just an explosion right like we don't need to believe in the the sanctity of the relationship we all as readers i guess we're called to do is to attend to its light you know the kind of squibs that flash on the page as the plot moves along on again off again like the patter of control you know kind of it's to me at least i find that he can't avoid falling under her spell like frank and cora are together very toxic they seem yeah. to use the word love yeah, it's, it's on toxic. account of having exhausted all other platitudes you know like in their heat of passion love is the only thing that kind of the only word that but i mean how do you reconcile like the way he talks about her as a figure like you know the the grand mother of every whore in the world and then the next sentence he's talking about loving her and wanting her baby and all this like it's god this is really fucking weird right yeah it's definitely freudian um, I th- I think, uh theory is thrown into this story whew, like yeah. the oedipal complex so. uh, in a way too yeah. like i'm wondering more like was frank's grand grandmother or mother was she like a prostitute and that's how he became to be like is it kind of like a don draper situation from mad men where he was like the son of a whore who ended up gr- grifting his way through life until he managed to luck his way to a you know a um uh pennsylvania rich family and become like an uh, an advertiser mm. you know like it's very it's interesting i, I don't think yeah. of that now like i wasn't even thinking about this in my notes but i'm seeing connections between you know like a james and kane mm-hmm. uh, story and Mad Men, and now it's kind of making a lot it's, it's, it's actually coming together for me in terms of uh the don draper character so that's uh he's almost like a sophisticated frank chambers in a way uh who doesn't sully himself with murder you know what i mean but Anyway, uh, mm. that said, what I well, I'll just just to finish my bit, I'll yeah, just finish sorry, my bit. I digress. Um, um, where was I here? Yeah, I think that a a more settled, maybe if that's the right word, or like a, a more compassionate pair of readers might say, "What you know? What do these two characters know about love? Like this isn't love, but it, I suppose." it could be as real to them as it is to us, right? Like they feel trapped and they're escaping things and the pace of their passion works, I guess, in conveying that point, right? Like when an itinerant drifter meets a doubting locked down lady, things are probably going to go in this direction, right? Yeah. 
I would say, you know, what they think of as love is just like this is this incredible dependence that they require for each other after the whole situation plays out. Like if this had just been mm. like if Frank had just been hired and worked for Nick and messed around with his wife and caused a, a, a down, you know, a fallout because of that and moved on to his life, then that would be an understandable story. And it would be exactly what would have happened in any other circumstance. If Cora didn't get Frank involved in killing her husband, then this is exactly what would have happened. And I think it's the bond, the real bond or quote unquote love that's created to me in the story isn't the lust that they had for each other in the beginning where they collide together and then come up with that scheme. It's the fallout of that, of that first murder of that first attempt. And then going into the actual successful uh, execution of the murder and the trial together and the betrayal together, their dependence on each other, despite the betrayals, despite them connected to this terrible crime that creates this weird sort of love in a way. And Frank, I think just like a drug, he's attached to it because he's, he's, that's like the only light at the end of the tunnel that he's seen. And that's why he attaches herself to her. And I think that's what Kane Mm -hmm. is trying to emphasize to us is that yes, on the surface, we can see that this is an obsession, that this is lust, but it became so perverted that in a way Frank is so blind to see that this isn't really love. It's something much more sinister. Uh, And these people are Mm -hmm. just, talk stuck together in their situation and all they can do is acquiesce to the idea of love to make things work if you catch my drift sure i catch it exactly yeah. uh, i went for anyway i went for a four overall with investigation it was my highest mark you went for a four as well cool. yeah well let's let's talk then josh about uh, the perpetrators you said that you didn't rate them the same way as you did for principal. Well, I just see them, like, to me, I look at the other perpetrators in the story. I would say Sackett could be considered a perpetrator in a way. But, oh, but everybody except for Nick is a perpetrator in some yeah. capacity. Everybody is, is is toxic. And, yeah. And, you know, yeah. and Kennedy. Yeah. You know, they're devious interlopers. They're all rotten. Yeah. You know when you play Dungeons and Dragons and you have to decide what type of character your character is? So I would say that there's, a, like, Sackett for, in particular, he's what you call lawful evil. A man who builds his reputation okay. on how many men he's hanged, for example. And it, it doesn't feel that it's about justice, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Kennedy is no, not for Kennedy him. is an opportunist, for sure. As is Katz. But Katz is also mm-hmm. playing his own political game. He's corrupt and dirty. He's playing with the legal system. Uh, mm-hmm. They're doing all these sort of things to make everybody look good and have the outcome that everybody wants in the end. It was more beneficial for both, I, I would say, for Katz and co. And even Sackett, in a way sorry, for Katz and Kennedy to get Cora and Frank off. And also Katz was able to score a blow against his rival Sackett, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. who himself isn't, you know, pure and pristine individual. Uh, he comes off as being this grandfatherly, you know, like pillar of the community type. But he even admits to saying that, like, I get it, man. I kick down that door and do something terrible to, to her as well. Uh it's almost like he's revealing a darker aspect of himself in that situation. Now we know he's trying to get a confession from Frank in, in a way. To yeah. Try, that, that's, that's what trying he's trying to, to, trying to, do. to relate to him. But is he, mm-hmm. but is, mm-hmm. is that he's, is he also projecting his own inner desires, his own demons? Like it's hard to say. Maybe. 
I, I don't see him as a kind of an upstanding grandfatherly figure. I, no, I he, see he, him he, as he, devious he as well. He projects that. He projects that to the community. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I got you. Yes, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, but yeah, he, he's clearly not, is he? Because he he manipulates Frank and he he um, intimidates Frank to the point where his yellow belly shows real clear, and he yeah he betrays Cora. Yeah. Uh, in as much as. <laughs> betray is the right word here you know yeah he signs that confession against her so there's uh, it's a it's a strange one there's a lot of focus on these characters in the middle part of the story and to me i think that could have possibly been used to better use to flesh out frank and cora a little bit more uh so, you know that you know i think what i got with frank and cora was good enough for me to give it a very high rating but i would have probably given it a higher rating even and you of course as well mm-hmm. uh, at least mm-hmm. up to where i am probably if, you know, we could have passages of the book or something to go through, like their back history or just get something more of a feel for their characters. And I felt that like mm-hmm. as much as like I found, you know, Sackett and Katz and Kennedy provide good, uh, good obstacles. They provided a good they provided um, exciting twists and turns in the storytelling. They were sort of like, to me, archetypal characters that you would find in crime fiction. And this to me is when the crime fiction aspect of the story really kind of takes over the overall narrative that we're getting. So we're on this trajectory, you know, at the beginning of the story where it's like this mad love affair leading to violence and how the story ended up in the end, I really loved. And I thought that worked well with like what we, what we started with, but in the middle part, we get more of this crime fiction element in here that to me, like, I think it could have been pared down a bit just so that we could focus more on the protagonists, the the principles uh, in the story. Yeah. And what we got for the perpetrators because of this, to me, even though there was effort put into fleshing them out, I was still, you know, not overly excited ab- about these characters. I-, I wanted a little bit more from them as well, but we didn't quite get that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going with three and a half out of five on the perpetrators. Right. Well, that that's exactly what I gave as well, a three and a half. Um, neither Frank nor Cora are nice characters. I think we've already been through that. The passion of their crimes as perpetrators, it's pretty well described in the book, but the motivations are really loose and chaotic. And and I don't mean to, like, I I just don't like that so much in the story. I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that I deny the existence of loose and chaotic motivations in crime. Of course I don't. They're everywhere around us. Just that if this is a death row confessional, I would like to have seen Frank reflect a little bit more on the decision-making process. And perhaps Kane got himself wrapped up a bit with the reveal at the end, like, oh, guess what? I'm writing this now and hopefully the priest is going to publish it for me. But if he had maybe played, I think in terms of the literary value, not value, the literary meat, I think would have been nicer, um, more palatable had the... um, uh, had some more reflection gone into it, you know, like yeah. the decision-making process behind the crime. Like it's only his mania as it extends to her through lust that we get. It's a love story, I guess. Um, so that's okay. And his blinders are fully on. We understand that, but I still want more of the crime, uh, the crime motivation. He, he just kind of reacts to it all. Yes. So, so blase, like he just goes along with it. And I feel like that makes him really weak. I, I do, however, I, I think Cora's more interesting here as a perpetrator for me. And I like the fact that she motivates so much of the crime in the story. It makes her complex. It makes her a complex villain or a complex perpetrator. And one who, even if her motivations aren't fully scaled and diagrammed for us, she remains intriguing. But of course, Kane is 
innovating a trope here, right? He's reinforcing this idea of the yeah. femme fatale before the noir era films that you work so well, well on really galvanize it. And like, I mean, yeah. Cora reads more like a trapped and misguided woman who who realizes that she'll she'll never um, escape unless she does something, and not necessarily like a Black Widow way or an all women are evil way, but it, but more in like a complex, insecure sort of a way, right? Uh, anyway, she re- that's, I, I think Cora is interesting. She is very interesting. And that's how she reads to me uh, from Frank's perspective, as you said, kind of like, but we don't really see her inner workings. And I think putting a, a spin on Cora as like, not Frank per se as a perpetrator, but more as Cora as a perpetrator in this story, because Frank, no matter what, his actions are morally, you know, reprehensible in what he did. He is still kind of mm-hmm. under the spell of Cora. And Cora is a more is an interesting figure because we don't get her inner working. So she jumps between being a principal and a perpetrator. And yeah, I think this yeah. is why I wasn't quite sure on her motivations. No, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't quite sure on her motivations. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I didn't give full marks for the narrative of the investigation of the story. I feel that it's, it was lacking something for me and, and you, and you, even in this section here on the perpetrators, you've underlined that for me perfectly uh, by bringing that up. Okay, cool. So what did you do for the environs and the secondary characters? Well, described in the first person, you know, we drift through these landscapes with Frank's point of view. It's not too descriptive to not seem first person point of view, but it's detailed enough to give a sense of the world and the time in which it was written and in which these characters inhabit. So it feels very lived in, it feels very believable and tangible, but at the same time, because it's your first person perspective, it's not overly written to be that way, where we're kind of just getting kind mm-hmm. of like the sense of that world through uh, mm-hmm. Frank's Frank's vantage, if, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get exactly what you mean. It's it's not a book you're going to recommend for its great descriptive settings. Like you're just not going to do that. It's not that type of story. And yet, like the Twin Oaks is really the only environment we get described in in much flourish. Yeah, the hospital and the courtroom or the 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 interview room. That's very vague. You know, like it, 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 yeah, we travel to different places, but we don't really feel them. Yeah, like you know? I don't feel this. I never. I would never imagine. Like it, it wasn't until kind of like in the. I realized in the end that this was a Los Angeles set story. It was set in like in the suburbs of Los mm-hmm. Angeles, but to me, it could have been anywhere out on the dirty road out somewhere in the West, you know, like, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah. So what was your mark for environment? I mean, there, th- th- to me, I felt that they were like those of a theater stage, you know, just enough to drape the action, nothing more. It's uh, like you said, it's the mental perspective, the landscape of the narration that we we're really getting. Yeah. It's like, Kane's not interested in building uh, an evocative atmosphere through places here. I don't. But think. I think that's logical for him to be. To, 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 I think it's logical for him to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And I can't. I, I can't. You know, I can't detract the book for it. To me, in my opinion, like if it was overly written and overly descriptive, and there was a sense of place in there more so than mm-hmm. character, I think it would have probably failed as a novel. It would have been overly. It would have been overwrought. But at the same time. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. This is a story of passion. Yeah. This is a character's narration that's all about fixation and obsession. If if he's going to stop and talk to you about the species of trees or the animals scurrying around the ground and the heat and the sun and all of that stuff, then, or even like, you know, the ice cubes and the drink, you know, <laughs> if he's going to do those, yes. those sorts of uh, descriptive or expository moments, 
I guess you're not going to you're not going to get that sort of wham bam straight to Cora man feel you know <laughs> yeah grand slam of of, uh, of eggs right from Denny's there uh, or sorry from the from from, from the Twin Oaks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But we got to rate it something because that's the category. So, yep. yep. I think for a first person narrative, you, as I said, you got to hold back in terms of uh, these descriptions, mm-hmm. but you also got to work them in to get a feel for the environment. And I think Kane did a good job at that. So I'm giving it four out of five okay. for the environs. Okay. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm more punishing when it comes to this category, even in a first person narrative. I think you can do more. Uh, I think you can do more to get the place for the reader created because if you don't then you're really really gambling on the reader caring about these characters caring about you know their passion their lust and a lot of readers wouldn't um you know i think about what chandler did with uh um farewell my lovely you know i I think of what he does in in some of those stories where you're dealing with the similar characters and uh I know it's not. I know it's not the same. I realize it's not the same, but I don't think that just because it's a first-person character piece uh, that hinges on on the power of passion in your narration and, and the fixation of character. I don't think that you can't also give a bit more decoration to the environment and bring it to life a bit. Um, maybe, maybe it, Frank mm-hmm. f- to stick with consistency. Maybe as a, as a traveler, he doesn't pay attention much to settings because they're just always in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know. I'll go along with what you're saying, but as a reader. Like, I guess what I'm saying is I fully appreciate and can even with you justify a mark of four. But as a reader, I'm still the guy who likes to have places evoked for yes. me. And um, I'm going to go 2.5. Just I'm going to pass it because you can't fail it. It does what it, it's supposed to do. I'm not going to go to your length because I'm just more critical generally as, a, as an environmental reader. I like mm-hmm. being transported places, even in these types of stories. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel much here. Yeah. So... I, I, ha- I have to be true to myself. Yeah, I, that's, I understand that completely, man. And I see where you're coming from. I was a bit utilitarian in terms of this category. I, I thought that what he did for the story worked. I think as a confessional, mm-hmm. you're going to focus more on the situation at hand and not the environs. Yep. Yep. Whereas with like Chandler, for example, but, it, but it's a failed confessional, man. It's it's. I mean, it's a confessional insofar as it tells the story of the crimes. It's not a confessional in terms of his emotional remorse no, no. or you know, or reclamation. It's not that story at all. So yeah. Uh, but anyway, yes, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. So you went four. I went two and yeah. a half. Uh, okay, let, let's finish the pipes off here for The Postman Always Rings Twice with the talk on secondary characters. What'd you go for here? I went high mark on this one because I think it worked pretty well with the story. Um, I, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think it really grounded the story in reality more so than the environs did. And that was the, the supporting cast. Uh, despite the first person right. point of view, Kane creates more than thin sketches of the people that populate this world. They're obstacles for our lovely couple and threaten their existence in a way, and at the same time, help persist in their existence, if you catch my drift. Um, yeah, sure. I think Kane's penchant for dialogue and character shines through 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 not just to Frank and through Cora, but through these other figures that in, enter in and out of the novel, particularly Nick in general. Um, he writes Nick very subtly in a way where we, we want to kind of see what Cora doesn't like about him. And we're looking for those faucets that make it seem. And he puts just enough in there to say, okay, maybe he's a bit controlling. Maybe he has an old world kind of feel towards women. You know, maybe he has that about him, but he's just so generous and lighthearted and stuff. And, but I do feel that Kane writes in a way where he's kind of oblivious to Cora's feelings. Like, I, I don't know, maybe Nick is just too 
into himself, maybe a little narcissist about how he's doing so well mm-hmm. in in America that he's and he wants to create an American, fa- a Greek American hybrid family, you know, like as a, the, the immigrant's <laughs> dream, so to speak, right? In in these times, and I feel that he's oblivious to Cora's. This was this what this is what makes him oblivious to Cora's disgruntlement. But that makes him a great character. Mm. That makes him a great character, mm. even through the first-person perspective of Frank Chambers. Uh, the same with that cop, you know, who catches him standing by the ladder. Uh, very friendly and stoic cop, but you could tell he's he's a good cop because he has his eye out for people doing you know doing bad stuff, and he's always you know vigilant as an officer and. I, I just found that kind of a very good representation of uh, the, the police institution by James N. Kane, uh, who he shows respect for. But at the same time, Kane, through his characters of Katz and and Sackett, I think he also shows uh, the, the people in position of power, uh, unlike the cop, who's someone like Frank, a uh, work, working class individual who took a good path in his life as opposed to Frank's path. We have people like Satchit and Katz who are basically using these people as pawns in their own political games, uh, in mm-hmm. their own corruption. Mm-hmm. So they, they were fleshed out really good for me, in my opinion. Kennedy is a crime fiction archetype to me. Uh, the opportunist who was only there for, uh, who was only there for like to appear in the narrative to That's drive right. a part of the story forward. He's good. Overall, I give four out of five to the supporting cast of uh, the Postman Always Rings Twice. Right. Well, I wasn't far behind you. I was at 3.5. For reasons we already mentioned in the investigation, I see where Katz and I see where, um, what's his name, uh, Sackett. I see where Katz and Sackett are coming from, even Kennedy. Like, they are serving their purpose in the story. Thematically, I think they're there to remind us that the world itself, not just the people, but the institutions people create, they're corrupt. You know, anything made of man can become corrupted by man. You know, there's, uh, it, it sounds quite hoity-toity, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I do think that Kane's doing something with that here, and it, it works. You know, it works through the secondary characters, but um, you know, they still are secondary characters. Sometimes a secondary character, a really great secondary character, will bleed into the main story. But once they're off the story, they're out of the story, and for that reason, they're always going to be. I think, in my mind, at least, given that we've only got three of them in here. But then again, we got Nick too, right? So Nick's a great character. I just wish he was treated better. I feel like when Nick dies, it's the it's the death of, of goodness in the story. It's the death of generosity. So what if that generosity smells? So what if that generosity sounds different to you? So what if that... It's fucking generosity. It's goodness. It's sunshine in the story. And it's all killed. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, that bothers me a bit because there's no light. Like, you're not, you're not chasing anybody good. You're not... You know, you got nobody to root for in the story after Nick is killed because he's the nicest guy there is and you know that he's going, you know, he's going to be outed from the story. And then it's all world building of their lust and their, you're just reading to see what happens. You know, what's the train wreck going to show me next? You know, um, yeah. Nick, Nick's killed. So the secondary characters, it would be nice if one of them was nice, but we don't see any nice secondary characters that remind us of the good in the world. We just see after Nick is dead, we just see more corruption. Maybe the baby, you know, the innocence of the child even couldn't be born into the world, you know? There's no reclamation there either. It's just, it's dark, man. The story is dark and the secondary characters don't do much to to raise or remind us of the light. But 
three and a half for me. I mean, it's a dark story. It's meant to be a dark story. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a compelling read for sure. But uh, my, my total for this story is 17 out of 25. And your total, my man, is um, 20 out of 25. So yeah, we both liked it. Um, you liked it a little more than I did, I think. But uh, as always is the case here on Lighten the Pipes, um, yeah, a, a good discussion had over the postman always rings twice. Indeed. Before we sign off, my good man, before we sign off, you got any last uh, comments or words about this one? I don't think so. I think we discussed what we did about it. I I will say that like one thing I wanted to emphasize in the investigative in the investigation isn't just the narrative, but also the writing of the story. Despite, you know, I have some issues with some of the logic of the story, I found the writing was beautiful. Like just the prose that James and Kane uses when we talk about the dialogue of his characters and how they bring the characters and that world to life. It's not hyperbole. Like he does it so well. And it, it really, I think that's what grips you immediately. Like just that first line of the story, as you mentioned in the summary, just that line of him getting off the hay truck. I was in immediately mm-hmm. right then and there. Like for some reason, that's just that, mm-hmm. that first line or just the paragraph that followed it, just talking about cornflakes and, and orange juice. It's just <laughs> kind of like made things real for me. And it, it hooked me right into the story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cool. That's good. I also found that in a way, I know Kane was considered at the time provocative for this story, and it was also considered morally decadent. And, um, you know, there was a lot of people against his writing style and stuff. But And they had to, and of course, when they did Double Indemnity uh, for Hollywood, they had to really sanitize the story in order for it to work mm-hmm. in, that, in, that, in that environment. But I will say that... Um, I didn't find this story gratuitous. Like there was no glorification of violence in this story. It wasn't the detective killing the bad guys and buddy crime. And in a way that, that in a way that could be interpreted even today as fascist. It's, it's, it's more about in this story uh, about how the decisions that people make to choose violence and how violence does not solve problems at all. And in fact, makes things worse. And it's almost about self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like, the ultimate outcome that you are avoiding when you strive towards your goal, if you become too obsessed with that goal, you'll end up falling into that inevitable outcome. And that's, that, yeah. that, that's the, that, that's yeah. the, that's the tragedy of it in a way. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not sure how, how much I would agree with you that the violence isn't glorified because I think the violence in the story is kind of glorified to the extent that it, it, it enables the characters to be together. And yes, I think it's, it's romanticized. It's, I think it's romanticized it, through know. Frank's writing, but we know Frank's perspective, but we know that what they're doing is wrong. We got, it, it, it gives toxic feelings, you know, towards the whole relationship mm-hmm. and, and how it ends and stuff like that. Ter- so terribly for the characters it seems to me it's like yeah. the classic crime does not pay kind of scenario in the, in the end. Oh yeah, yes. I think in the end, yes. But, but while we're reading it, yeah, yeah, you're never you're never quite sure. You know, you're not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about at all mentioned it in the in the summary, uh, but one thing we haven't talked about, and I'm just curious. Just you know, we don't have to link it to any of our pipe scoring. But what did you make of all the cats and the pumas, and and what what did you make of all of that? What's Kane doing there? Well, I thought the cougar metaphor was pretty dead on, um, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? You're... 
I don't know. It's just one of these things that sticks out like a sore thumb in the story. You know, we've got cats at the beginning that are are spoiling the adventure. Then you got cats at the end that spoil the the. You get the cat at the end that spoils the murder attempt. Then you got a cat at the end that forces her to, uh, you know, to want to leave him because the cat shows up and we learn or she learns that way that um, Frank was out with Madge or whatever her name was, uh, you know, for the week, even though he said he didn't go anywhere. Um, just to, he just you know I don't know it's like it's like uh, there's something was the, significant. Was the cat, a cat, a cat screws Frank over twice yeah was, was the cat a Tom or was it a female cat I can't recall uh, would that matter <laughs> no well from a metaphor for the metaphor I'm trying to uh, propose it's it, it it might but I can see the cat being kind of like a Tom like uh, kind of a metaphor for mm-hmm. Frank himself he basically he's messing around doing different things and he ends up getting electrocuted in the end and isn't that the ultimate <laughs> yeah, now yeah. we don't know if frank got the electric chair but the cat sure did frank frank just kind of going to end up under the noose probably but okay sure yeah i don't know what and what about the puma what about the puma kitten that he's gifted <laughs> i don't know like you know, it's, know. It, it metaphorically symbolically the cat could could represent anything i just think it's cool like that the cats are there and at the end what happens to the puma at the end of the story <laughs> like it's 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 there at the twin oaks diner and then they go away like so someone feeding this cat is this just a cat that grows up like kind of <laughs> feral in the environs and then starts to you know eat and maul people is there a sequel to this called puma you know <laughs> puma the twin oaks puma that uh I don't know. Maybe, maybe we could write that Twin Oaks Puma. We could, you know, we could. I could write that story. Anyway, um, a good chat over a good book, buddy. Uh, it was fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at pipes underscore pod. Uh, and if you'd like to email us, you can go to uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com and reach myself or Josh there. We'll uh, love to have your thoughts on The Postman Always Rings Twice. And Josh, in terms of our next read, uh, we got a couple we can choose from. Really exciting books this season lined sure up. Do. Uh, how do you feel about... How do you feel about uh, Erskine Childer's The Riddle of the Sea going back to 1903? Or would you like to stay with something a little more modern? That intrigues me. Um, we have other ones to choose from, yeah. so we'll figure something out for sure. But we've had that other one that you just mentioned on the list for quite a while, so it seems kind of inevitable that we would go for that one next. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe we will go there. All right, everyone, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you back here soon on Lighting the Pipes. Bye. Bye.